Our God and Heavenly Father, we come and once again cast ourselves before you, uh, seeking great mercy from you, uh, seeking your grace, asking that you would, uh, in fact, correct any perspectives in our minds about uh, your great saving plan, your great saving work. Lord, that we would come uh, humbled, knowing that you are a God who does everything. You are a God who uh, not only planned a complete salvation, but affects it in the lives of sinners uh, today and uh, in the ages to come. Uh, we will see a wonderful and glorious plan brought to fruit. And we pray even this morning that we would see a little bit of it and that our hearts would be encouraged by that and that we would be drawn in love to you. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So as I said, um, by now if I'm coming to this message, which is definitely a repeated message, um, I've already preached five or six messages and uh, I've come to the last one. And uh, as uh, we come to the last one uh, this morning, uh, I'll start off by just asking you uh, to cast your mind back to Martin Luther one more time. I think many of you know him. In 1517... Uh, he raised uh, 95 discussion points with the Roman Catholic Church. He did that by nailing, if you like, uh, the documents with all the points listed on uh, the front door of his church. It was an invitation to discuss things. And little did he know that that discussion or that hopeful discussion would actually kickstart uh, what was a radical and, uh, if you like, almost a violent in some cases, Reformation that changed the world. We owe so much to Martin Luther, uh, even in our churches today. But, but what you probably don't know is Martin Luther often suffered with doubt. And he often suffered with doubt even about his own salvation. And often this doubt led to depression. Uh, Katie, his wife, you probably all know the very uh, popular story once was dressed up in funeral clothes, running around the house doing her chores. And uh, Martin Luther said to her, Katie, um, what are you doing? In other words, have you gone mad? And uh, her response was, you, be you behave as if God is dead. And so I thought I would dress for the funeral. Uh, instantly, this snapped Martin Luther out of his misery. Uh, but... Um, it's really hard to picture someone that's a giant of the faith, really, for us, actually doubting his salvation. Um, but for us, I suspect this is a more common phenomenon. For Western Christians who live uh, generally immersed in worldliness, um, I think it's a common question. And perhaps this morning you might be asking, um, am I truly saved? Uh, is God really going to bring me to heaven? Uh, can I be sure uh, that I am actually God's work? Uh, well, Luther later would say something like this. He says, all the heaviness of my mind, all the melancholy that I feel comes from the devil, especially these thoughts that God is not gracious to me or that God will have no mercy upon me. You see, it's even easy for me to read such a sentence, isn't it? It's much harder if you're actually a person that actually feels condemned by God 
or feels that you've wronged God in such a way uh, that there's no hope for you. Um, folks, uh, the wonderful thing is, uh, as we go through Ephesians 2, uh, we'll see that the salvation that God provides is a complete salvation. Uh, there are many passages in the Bible that actually very directly speak to assurance, and this passage is really not one of them. And so this is where I'm going to upset your two Joshua's a little bit. Uh, but, but what I want to do is come to Ephesians 2 um, through the lens of Christian assurance and see if this passage gives us any clues from just two or three words, not the whole passage, um, about your eternal safety, about just how wonderful and complete the work of God is in a sinner's life. And the first thing I'd like us to look at uh, is that we can be sure we are saved because we are saved by grace. Um, now, the simple definition of that word grace is undeserved merit, uh, undeserved sorry, favor or unmerited or unearned favor of God. You see, grace goes beyond mercy, doesn't it? Mercy holds back punishment and does not punish the guilty. Uh, grace actively loves the enemy. Um, some assume that if you look at grace, you're really consigning God to be something of a doormat. He sees a lawbreaker and ignores the lawbreaker. Uh, opponents mock God, uh, but he doesn't react. Instead, all he does is love them. Matthew 5.45 seems to confirm this view, doesn't it? When Jesus says that God makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. But, but we need to be clear, don't we, about grace, saving grace. Uh, Matthew's speaking about what we call general grace, or what theologians call common grace. Uh, God is kind to all sinners for a period of time. But when the time runs out, judgment will come, and those who have neglected God, those who have rejected God, will go to hell for an eternal, uh, eternity of judgment and punishment. In Ephesians 2, though, Paul is speaking not about common grace. He's speaking about saving grace. Let's look at verses 4 and 5 of uh, Ephesians 2. And I'm reading from the King, New King James uh, Bible. And I'm sorry if you've got to do a little bit of a translation as you read the, two, uh, the passage with me. And so from verse 4, But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved." Uh, this is saving grace. This is not grace that is extended to all. No, it's only grace that is extended to those whom God has chosen. It's grace uh, because it's really a reflection of God's good nature. It's not something we receive. It's something in God. Um, and here God, for an inexplicable reason... Because of something out of him, his good nature, he decides to show some of his opponents uh, goodwill. He actually turns them from being opponents and makes them his children. These enemies do not do anything for God. There's nothing special about these enemies uh, in and of themselves. No, it's because of God's 
gracious character. Some men are chosen out of the whole human race and quite interestingly, they're delivered from being under the wrath of God and they're granted, I'll put it to you from this passage, eternal safety. Um, you see, saving grace is selective. Uh, saving grace restores a sinner to God. Uh, it's infinitely more than common grace. Uh, let, let, let me just show you from Ephesians just something about saving grace. How it starts your salvation and how it brings it to absolute completion. Uh, he argues this really right from the beginning of Ephesians. If you go all the way back to chapter 1, and if you're back in chapter 1 and at verse 3, notice what he says. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. You see, the first spiritual blessing that Paul speaks about to the Ephesians, he starts off his letter and bangs straight into it. Uh, he says, before the world was made, before you even had any, if you like, remnant of existence, um, God chose you in Christ. You see, the timing instantly proves you could not have earned anything. The timing proves that salvation is never earned. It's totally free. Before you could do anything for God, God planned, intended, and determined that he would choose to save sinners. In fact, there must have been something wrong with sinners all along because when he chose us, he chose us to be holy and without blame. Now, what were we chosen for? Uh, perhaps you think we were chosen to be athletes or mathematicians. Uh, perhaps you were chosen to be a slave or some sort of middle management in the life of the church. Uh, no, the next verse tells us that we were predestined uh, to adoption as sons by Christ Jesus, to himself according to the pleasure, to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace. You see, we're adopted to be sons and daughters. We're chosen uh, to be Christians and to be children of God because of Christ Jesus. We're chosen in him. And so we deserve no credit. And so when you come to thinking about saving grace, saving grace does not make God a doormat. It's quite the opposite. Saving grace is hardly passive. Uh, saving grace is active. Saving grace actively chooses. Saving grace lovingly and thoughtfully considers. Saving grace acts and drives, in fact, the plans of God in salvation. And saving grace does more than just choose a group of people. Uh, if we keep going through chapter 1, we'll see it also redeems and purchases forgiveness for those people. Go back to, once again, chapter 1 and verse 7. In him, that is in Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace. There's that word again, grace. God's saving grace sent Jesus to the cross. 
God's saving grace sent Jesus to the cross before any of us were born. Before we could do anything for Jesus, Jesus went to the cross willingly. Uh, Romans 5.8, Paul puts it another way. He says, God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And then he follows up, if you didn't get it already, verse 10, when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. Uh, I, I come from India, and if you have a conversation in India with Christians, they love this term by the grace of God. And they always use it, and it almost degenerates itself to the equivalence of luck. And so they'll say something like, uh, by the grace of God, I got this car. By the grace of God, I came to church this morning and didn't have an accident. Um, and they prefix everything in their life with the grace of God. Um, and I suspect in some sense, if you say the grace of God often enough, everyone in the church thinks you're a Christian, and you think you are a Christian as well. Uh, but the sad news, if you really understand what Paul is saying in Ephesians 1 and Ephesians 2 is he's saying, saving grace does not get you a car. Saving grace will not find you a wife. Saving grace doesn't get you what you want. Saving grace starts off with God choosing you to be a son. And then saving grace sends Jesus to die on the cross. And saving grace then follows up by sending God's spirit to make you alive to Jesus Christ and make you alive to his saving work. And this is exactly what he's saying in verse 5 of chapter 2. And read with me verse 5 of chapter 2. Even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ by grace, folks. By grace you have been saved. Uh, now the obvious question is why does God save even some sinners? Why doesn't he just destroy the whole world? Um, and Ephesians 2 tells you the disappointing news. And the sad news is he doesn't save you because he thinks you're special. He doesn't save you because he even has pity on you. He doesn't save you to make you happy. Um, Ephesians tells us, Paul, Paul says that God saves us to draw attention to his grace. He wants the whole world to sit up and pay attention to the fact that he is gracious. You, you see, after the fall, if you were to look at the world after the fall with all the thistles and thorns and women having pain and childbearing and men trying to rule women and women trying to rule men and the total mess that came about, it is possible that you could accuse God of being ungracious. You could accuse God that he has put us all in a world full of sin and he's made our lives miserable. Well, God had to set the record straight. He would not let his character go through the mud. And so he transforms fallen sinners like you and me uh, that this misunderstanding about his character might be corrected. He wants us to know. He wants us to see that really he is gracious. And so you and I bumble around every day and we battle with our sin. Some weeks we are doing really well and other weeks we might fail. 
And then we are weaklings walking around with some successes here and some successes there. But God's saying, you are walking billboards. You are massive advertisements out there, like on Parramatta Road. And you're saying to the world that God has a gracious character. He actually saves sinners like you and me. Look at verse 7. That in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. You see, he's not just going to do that now in 2023. He's going to do this now and in the ages to come. And if God is going to placard his grace with sinners like you and me now, the same grace is going to be placarded in the ages to come through the same Christians. And he's going to make sure that every one of his elect will most certainly be not just saved today, but will be saved tomorrow and will be saved right into the ages to come because we must know that he is a gracious God. Folks, you can be certain of your salvation this morning, not because of something in you, but because God is gracious and because he saves by grace. The second thing we pick up is we can be sure we are saved because of what God means when he says you're saved. Uh, most of you know the parable of the Good Samaritan. Uh, Jesus is speaking to these Pharisees, isn't he? And he tells them that they should love their neighbours. And they think they're smarty pants, and so they come back and they try to avoid their responsibility, and they ask, who is my neighbour? Uh, I suspect they're angling to limit who they have to love to just their families, or possibly a little bit more, their next-door neighbour. Um, and then if you want to get you know, stretch the friendship, the most they're willing to love are just Jews and not Gentiles. Um, to expose their selfishness, Jesus tells them the story, story of a bloke from Samaria. And most of us think it's a moral story, it's a story that teaches us to be nice to one another. Um, I don't think it's that. You, you see, Jesus wanted the Pharisees to know they could not be nice. They cannot be nice to anyone. Uh, I, I can put it to you this way. You are not a nice person. You cannot be nice to anyone. Every time you are nice to someone, in general you will have ulterior motives for being nice to them. And if you don't have ulterior motives for being nice to them, what you will do is go round the corner and brag about the fact that you were nice and undo all your niceness anyway. Now, if you don't know the story, it's about this Jewish bloke who's going north from Jerusalem and he's heading up to Samaria and he gets bashed up by thieves along the way. He, the Bible tells us he was left half dead. But two Jewish re religious leaders come along and they see him and they just try to avoid their own countrymen. But then this man from Samaria, an enemy state, he comes along and he stops and he decides to help his half-dead enemy. Uh, notice what the Samaritan did in Luke 10, verse 34. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And he set him on his own animal, brought him to an inn and took care of him. Uh, this is grace, isn't it? Um, 
Grace loves someone who cannot do anything for you. Grace loves your enemy. But this is not enough. Notice what he does after that. On the next day when he departed, he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper and said to him, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend when I come again, I will repay you. You see, the enemy of this Jew took full responsibility to bring this man back to full health. You see, what Jesus is saying that we never love our enemies like that. Um, only God loves his enemies to the extent that he rescues them completely and brings them to total safety and restores them to complete health. You see, if you were to do a study on that word saved, you know, look at verses 8 and 9. Let me read. For by grace you have been saved. That's the word. Through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. You see, saved means to rescue someone from danger to safety. It means to take someone who's very sick and bring them to health. It means that it's a complete recovery. And it's a passive word, that word saved. God is doing the saving, in other words. We are not doing the saving. Um, to emphasize the point, Paul says, It is not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not of works, lest anyone should boast. And you might be sitting there this morning a little bit uncomfortable with this idea that God is doing everything in your salvation. Um, maybe you're sitting there and you're thinking, well, I get it that God created this opportunity for me when he sent his son to the cross, uh, but now I think it's up to me as an individual to actually express faith in Jesus. I, it's up to me, really, to let Jesus into my heart. Um, maybe you were taught all of this in your early age by someone, just as I was taught, when someone would open up Revelations 3, for instance, where uh, John's writing to the church, or Jesus is writing to the church at Laodicea, and you'll know these words, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him, and he with me. And I was told, Jesus is a perfect gentleman. Uh, Jesus is very aware that you are a human created in God's image. And so he actually treats you with dignity. He, he won't just barge in. No, he knocks on the door. And, and what he wants to do is knock on the door. And you have the inside latch to open up the door and let Jesus in. So why don't you let Jesus into your heart this morning? And he will come in as a perfect gentleman and he will come and eat with you. Um, folks, the first thing I'd like us to just think about is this was written to a church a people who are already made alive. Whereas Ephesians 2, the chapter we're studying, Paul is speaking to people before they became Christians. He's speaking to us about the time when we were not Christians. His claim is that we're not half dead at that point, like the man in the Good Samaritan story, no, his claim in Ephesians 2 is that before you became a Christian, you were fully dead. 
uh, Ephesians 2 and look at verse 1. And you were dead in trespasses and sins. And the obvious question is, what can a man do? And you need to go back to that story of the Good Samaritan again. Imagine if the Samaritan came up to this Jew lying half dead on the ground and said, uh, I know a way for you to get better. What you need to do is just get up and walk into town. And when you get to town, go to the bank. And when you get to the bank, bank are generally friendly people. They love to give loans. Why don't you ask them for a loan and they'll give you a loan, which you can pay back at a reasonable interest and the rates won't go up, so don't worry. And then what you do is you go to the local inn and you give that money to the inn and ask them to care for you. And if you run out, well, get up again and go to the bank and get another loan and pay for all that's needed to be paid for and then you'll be better. How would you rate the Samaritan? Would you say he's a good Samaritan? Folks, God doesn't give us just information about salvation. He does not just give us an opportunity to be saved that we've got to jump up and take up ourselves. He's not a gentleman. He's a king. He's a king who invades his enemies. And he invades sinners like you and me. And he violently turns us from ourselves and turns us to himself. And he saves us fully. You see that verse, that phrase we picked up from that verse. By grace you have been saved. It's complex grammar. The sentence really says, by grace you are being saved. It's present tense. The verb is of that verb for to be is in the present tense. But then when you come to that word saved, saved is in like the past tense. It's crazy. You'd never put present. It's not really the past tense. What it's called is the Greek perfect tense. And the Greek perfect tense has this, if you like, characteristic about it. What it's saying is it's something that has been done completely and it's something that has ongoing ramifications that will keep going and never stop going. And so I can rightly say to you, if you're a Christian, you were saved in the past. You are currently being saved from sins today. You are turning from sins today if you are a Christian. And you will be completely saved in the future. God's saving work is not just an experience you had many years ago. It's not just a decision you made in 1979 when you went up the front for Billy Graham. Uh, nor is it something just in the future that we'll only know when you die. It is something you will experience now as well. Uh, if you are truly saved, then salvation is currently working in your present experience. You are being, if you like, offended by sin today. You are being mortified or basically putting to death sin in your life because it absolutely disgusts you and you're longing and longing for more of Jesus even now and if this is working in you now well the future consequence is that God will save you completely there's no doubt about it if you're saved now you'll be safe and you'll be saved forever and then the third point and the last point we can be sure we are saved 
because we are God's handiwork. Now let me, before I say this point, let me just read two verses that Paul writes, one in Romans and one in Galatians, before we start talking about good works, just to make sure that no one misunderstands what I'm saying. In Romans 3.28, Paul says, Therefore we conclude... It's a conclusion, isn't it? He's building up an argument. Therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. Galatians 2 and verse 16. Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Christ Jesus that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law... No flesh shall be justified. Luther puts it this way. He says this. and He says it really lovely. No man can be thoroughly humbled until he knows his salvation is utterly beyond his own powers, his own devices, his own endeavors, will and works. Until he realizes that salvation depends entirely on the choice, on the will, and the work of another, namely of God alone, then he has come to grace and can be saved by grace. Mahan Lloyd-Jones says this in the negative. Man did not ask for salvation. Man did not want salvation. He did not even know he needed salvation. Man was not consulted about salvation Man did not make a single suggestion about salvation. Salvation is entirely of God from beginning to end. In Ephesians 2, this has been the argument from Paul, hasn't it? It's the repeated argument. He he wants you as a Christian to know your only hope is God. You are shut up to God. You have no other options. We cannot even boast about our faith because even that is a gift from God. It needs God to do this radical work, this supernatural work in our lives. Without it, we've got no hope. We've got to see ourselves this way. We've got to see ourselves not as someone who started off and made some decision and then is plodding along and making some good choices and then living now with better habits. No, no, we're we're a work of God. And the problem is we don't see ourselves this way. We wake up in the morning and we get dressed for church and we put a tie on and we look at ourselves and I've had a shave. There's no scruffy edges and I think, well, I remember I did actually one good thing this week. I actually said hello to Sarah. I think I'm a pretty good bloke. I think I'm probably even a good Christian. And we forget the Bible says you start off as being bad. There's something corrupt inside. You cannot even do a good thing on your own. You can only do something good if God intervenes and makes you alive. You can only have faith if God grants you faith and only then will you act in faith. Otherwise, you don't act in faith. And all of this happens because God has planned to do so beforehand. 
before you were even born. Look at verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You see, we don't make ourselves good by doing good things. We don't make ourselves Christians. If you're a Christian, then you're a work of God. You are something that God is making. You are not the active element. You are the passive element. The active element is God and His Spirit working in you. God is the workman, and you are just the raw materials being worked upon. Or as Paul puts it in another place, you're the clay. He's the potter. Uh, you see, the temptation is to think we're actually making a contribution in church. We've made it, and now look at us. We've done something together in this church. I've helped this person, or I've helped that person. And Martin Lloyd-Jones, he asks us to picture ourselves slightly differently. He says, picture this massive workshop. Seriously, come out to Kemp's Creek and see these workshops. They're like a hundred times the size of this church building. And imagine in the corner of one of those buildings, there's you. And someone's working upon you. That someone is God. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, picture yourself as that. And then look at another corner and there's someone else working there, perhaps on Sarah. Someone else working perhaps there on Ray. And then look across this massive workshop and you'll see there are thousands and millions of projects going on and God is working upon every single one. And in fact, he's not just forming you and molding you, he's in fact doing it and producing a whole church. You see, he says, for we, plural, including Paul himself, we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. And there's that word creation in, there, in that sentence, isn't it? And the fact that it's even been brought up, it should be throwing into your minds Genesis 1. There was nothing, and from nothing God made everything. All he had to do was speak the word. And everything came to being, except for man. Man, he took dust. And he took dust and formed him to be a man and breathed life into him. And Paul is saying, this is you as a Christian. You're dust at best. And God has breathed life into you so that you might produce good works. And my question again is, is this how you see yourself? Am I describing you here? Or are you sitting there thinking, well, I've really done my best and I've actually turned up this morning. I reckon God's pretty impressed. Uh, maybe you thought, oh, I've been nice to the kids this morning and God knows how much I didn't want to be nice to them. I think I'm right with God. Uh, perhaps you're a member of the church. Perhaps you're even a leader of the church. And you think that's what's going to make you a Christian before God and maybe you're on the roster this morning and you did some work and you think I'm a Christian because of this you're not a Christian because of something you've done you're a Christian because God 
has done something to you. He's doing something in you. You are his creation. And as his creation, you will behave in a way that he has created. It'll be, you'll be a new creation and you'll behave in a new way. In 2 Corinthians, he says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. All things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And what does this new look like? Well, a bit like a newborn baby. A newborn baby cries for food. Uh, well, you will hunger for the word of God. You will wake up in the morning and one of the first thoughts will be, I wonder what surprise God has in store for me. Every time I read his Bible, it's a surprise. And I can't wait for his little surprise this morning. I don't know where it's going to come from. Perhaps I'm in Leviticus and I'm going to be reading Leviticus. And I don't know about those surprises, but I'm going to give it a go. Um, perhaps you'll hunger for preaching. And you'll want to hear the word of God preached. Because your Bible study at this point in time is a bit difficult. And it's better when someone actually explains something for you in the early days. Uh, but when you do come to preaching, you listen with intent. You will actually seek God and ask him to convict you of your sin even in the preaching of the word. You will not come to rate the preacher. You will not come to sit down and question whether the Bible is even relevant today. No, no, you will come and submit yourself under the Bible Asking God to convict you of your sin, to enlighten your mind, in fact to enlarge your heart with much love towards God. Uh, and then you will walk in his way. You will actually change the direction of your footsteps. Your life will start to change. Your speech will change. You will speak in a different way. You will be guided by God's word in a different way. Your plans for the most basic things will be influenced by the word of God. You, you will find yourself even making changes to your plan so that your life is centered around the people of God. This church, here. Let me read verse 10 again. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Uh, this is the radical work that is needed in us to become a new creation. And the question again, um, Joel tells me, I don't ask enough questions in my preaching. Well, I've loaded up this week with a lot of questions for you. Is this you? And if you're saying, you won't believe it, but God has been merciful to me. I've actually noticed this work happening in me. Well, any work that God creates, nothing and no one can uncreate. If God has begun a work in you, a good work in you, he will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Folks, we can be sure we are saved if we are God's workmanship. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you again for your word and we once again cry out for mercy. We are not uh, seeking to make New Year's resolutions or these plans to uh, do something to impress you, but what we are doing is crying out for your mercy.
that you would work in us and that we would be transformed uh, to be a people unto God. Uh, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.